0: This is ContraZoom,
1: where we go back and forth about film.
0: I'm Dakota Ursino,
1: And I'm Rachel Ho.
0: On today's show, we are continuing our A24 retrospective. This is our 15th edition of the series. You can listen to episodes 215, A24 retrospective laggies, 213, A24 retrospective tusk, or go way back to 108, a history of A24 films to get the full backstory of the company. Today we are looking at 2014's Revenge of the Green Dragons. The film stars Justin Chong and Kevin Wu as two young men who rise up the ranks of the New York-based Chinese gang, the Green Dragons. I want to welcome to the show Rose Ho. Rose has her own film review website, Rose Colored ray and won the 2020 Emerging Critic Award from the Toronto Film Critics Association, the same award that Rachel won last year. Rose is also the third creator of The Asian Cut, joining up with Rachel and last week's guest, Alicia Mugel, to review Asian films. Welcome to the show, Rose. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thank you for having me. This is my first ever podcast.
0: Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, we're we're really excited to have you. And as soon as the Asian cut started up, I know Rachel wanted to have both you and Alicia back on uh, to sort of celebrate the launch of that. So I'm really excited that we get to have you in back-to-back weeks
1: yes mm-hmm. and doing an Asian E kind of movie it's not a great yes. one but it's an asiany yeah. movie that's cool it did just work out we didn't plan it that way it just just kind of work out that way now
0: let's kick off our episode with our tradition of our a24 four four questions and since it is your first time on the a24 retrospective series rose we want to hear from you so question number one what are your top three a24 films
2: I would say after looking through all the uh, A24 movies that I have watched, and um, I did have to go back and and research into how many there were and see which ones uh, were part of the A24 roster and which were not. I've seen twenty out of uh, almost one hundred and thirty films, I think, and um, still a lot though. <laughs> yeah, I I thought I would have seen more, but no. A24 has like a pretty. <laughs> why and and them. like some of them i actually hadn't heard of because they were pretty far back but uh my top three films are everything everywhere all at once after yang and the Roster.
1: so you like colin farrell then
2: i that's do basically
1: yeah that's where we're going with this <laughs> those are great though i like i love that i think i've said it last time we did Oh, I'm trying to remember now I think somebody else picks everything everywhere all at once recently and I think that that's a great one because I love that it's new and so um, I don't know I, I like that like such a new film has made it to the top of so many people's like all time great uh, a 24 and I love after Yang I think that's been a very underrated movie this year.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely appearing. Both of those movies have started to appear on, on multiple people's, multiple people's lists since that one came out. And what did yeah. you say your third one was there, Rose? Uh, the Lobster. Oh, The Lobster. Sorry, I thought you said The Lost Daughter originally. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not an A24 film, but yes, (laughs) The Lobster. The Yorgos Lanthimos film. Very, very different. Uh, That's also a great one, and one I'm surprised that more people haven't been naming. I think people forget how great that movie is.
2: It's oddly been underrated, yeah. Yeah. I've seen all of these just once, but there is one A24 film that I've watched twice, which I think I should mention, which is Locke, the Tom Hardy Mm. in a car movie. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I watched that and then I immediately had to watch it again because I was just like blown away by uh, Tom Hardy. I also had a huge crush on Tom Hardy at the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a movie I'm decidedly mixed on and I feel like I'm one of the few people because anyone that's seen it seems to really love it and I feel like a real outlier of being like, eh, it was just okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we did a good episode on that one though. Uh, I think it was with, who was that one with? Do you remember?
0: I think that was with Matthew, wasn't it?
1: Was it with Matthew?
0: I'll have to pull that up in uh, look. No, it was with Thomas. Yeah. That's right. Thomas. I
1: don't think it was with Matthew. You're right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I remember, I remember Dakota not being so hot on that movie and just, you know, he was wrong. It's okay. We're all, <laughs> we're all allowed to be a little wrong sometimes. It's a great movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but question number two, what was your introduction to A24?
2: Um I think the first A24 movie I watched was Spring Breakers but I wasn't really aware of it being an A24 movie. Um I guess I wasn't aware of A24 being a brand until people started talking about The Witch and Moonlight um which I think came out in the same year or near near each other and uh yeah and then people started talking about A24 as a brand and being known for making like award-winning artsy films.
0: Yeah, I think that's the sort of the case for a lot of people where they don't realize that they had watched probably two or three A24 films until about those same ones that you you were mentioning really start to to sort of penetrate the mainstream dialogue of what is this company and and how come all their movies seem really interesting.
1: I think the Oscar wins helped too, like Room and and Moonlight. um, Were those back-to-back years? Yes. Yeah. So I think like the award's attention too made it maybe fall into a bit more mainstream versus uh, just kind of like niche little movie nerds liking their movies. So I think that that probably really helped quite a bit too.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I feel like this is the question that we've been getting the best answers for. What director, dead or alive, do you think would make a good A twenty four
2: film? Um, definitely alive. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, because if they're dead, they can't make a movie. <laughs> anymore. That's a joke. Have you seen that joke yet? I don't actually. Think <laughs> I don't think so.
0: That's no, nice that's funny.
2: <laughs> no, that that was a joke I stole from someone. I can't remember who. Um, <laughs> I was thinking, uh, early career Taika Waititi, mm. the hunt for the wilder people seems to me like something A24 might make. Um, and then when I thought of that look, that look of the film, I also was reminded of, uh, Richard Ayoade's submarine. I don't know if you guys have mm. seen that. Yes. It's very, very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then both of them are really just copying Wes Anderson. <laughs> so I was thinking, yeah, probably Wes Anderson would would work out too.
0: Yeah, they all sort of have that sort of a uh, geeky charm to them, uh, like an awkwardness, and and that's a, definitely a style that has been sort of replicated by other A twenty four filmmakers. So I think any one of those three would probably be a good fit. I think at this point, though, both YTT and uh, and Anderson are probably too big. Like the, they wouldn't be able to fit their budgets in now that YTD is doing Marvel and Anderson kind of sets his own rules. Uh, but Richard Iowadi, I think, could still probably be a filmmaker that could be roped into to a twenty four either produced or distributed by them because he he isn't that well known. Like I know he's huge in England, but like over here in North America, most people don't really know him.
1: <laughs> and I like that you kind of very specifically said, um, Taika, early Taika. Cause mm-hmm. even if you take out the, the budget issue, I don't think Taika's tone right now, um, would make an age, or maybe it would. I don't know. But to me, he's gone a bit more, I think, broad with his comedy. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know. Like it, it feels more of a, um, I don't know. He feels more Ryan Reynoldsy to me, and Ryan Reynolds does not scream A twenty four to me. So, but but early. Although taika, we're about to do an A24 A twenty
0: four film that uh, features Ryan yeah. Reynolds.
1: Early Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> early. That's not actually know. early. I think that's mid no. <laughs> mid career Ryan Reynolds. yes, yeah, pre Deadpool Ryan Reynolds. He's been working. Yeah, that's true. Pre Deadpool Ryan Reynolds. But yeah, I I think early Taika is a very good distinction to make in that in that regard. Yeah.
0: Yeah, especially I'm a big fan of uh, his earlier stuff like uh, Boy and Eagle vs. Shark and stuff like that, which has a real uh, fun charm to them. Yeah. Now, the last question that is the most open to interpretation, Rose, what makes an A24 film?
2: So I know, like, going back through the whole, like, 130 movies list, there were many that I hadn't seen, and a lot of them are really uh, well-known horror movies, but... I tend to avoid horror. So I was leaning more towards the movies that I had seen, which are more artsy uh, with interesting directors and original stories, uh, gorgeous cinematography. Um, And um, I guess it can be, well, actually, I was thinking there were some movies that were A24 movies that turned out were not like Annihilation and Burning. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh notwithstanding the the film we're about to start talking about um a lot of a24 films have a uh, good representation of people of color when I think of like moonlight, the green Knight and Minari uh, those are, are also like pretty well known a24 films I think or best uh, that represent a certain um, vibe for a24.
1: The representation point an interesting one. I don't think we've actually talked about that um, mm-hmm. in at all yet, which is interesting. And maybe because actually we haven't really had too many movies come up. I'm trying to think now. Actually, have we had any movies come up that have not just uh, white people in them? I'm trying to think not, now.
0: Maybe? Not really. Um, no, no. This is probably yeah. the, the, the first one. We've done a couple of the, the later ones. Like we did one on uh, – Right. The Tragedy of Macbeth and The Green Knight, and, and both right. of them have uh, some more diverse cast. But yeah, c- looking back at uh, the early ones, and they really didn't, It's this is actually the first one. Um, oh, and it's not really until Moonlight that you that sort of becomes a little bit more of a trend.
1: That's interesting. I hate that it's a trend. Um, <laughs> I hate that that's, that's branded as a trend. But that it's also, as we will get into, because uh, this movie's not great. And that sucks. (laughs) It's not great. And it ends up being kind of the first one, but I think the representation points is a good one that um, yeah, oddly nobody's really brought that up and I've never even actually considered it myself that they're decent, but I, you know, that's a longer conversation, but I mean, have they, is the reason that they're known for representation now, is it because it's trendy or is it something that they're actually interested in, in doing? I don't know.
0: I think that's that's something to consider. Um, I look at it as you know, eight twenty four films are mostly mid budget films, and you know, we, it's not something that's often talked about. But you know, the, the the way the box office works is they want what is safe, what it what is going to mm-hmm. maximize money in return and get the most butts and seats and things like that. And so that is reusing a lot of the same people who are already famous or unfortunately targeting at demographics they think are the only ones that will actively come out. Whereas when you have a smaller budget, you have a bit more leeway that you don't have to worry about making 20 million an opening weekend that you can have a slow and steady word of mouth growth film. And that allows for people who might not be, you know, look like Tom Cruise or, or Brad Pitt or whoever else you wanna, you know, name to be able to be cast and lead a really dynamic film.
1: That's true. That's a good point. And I mean like that's sort of the point of I suppose A twenty four neon um Anna Perina, like the smaller movie houses. Like they they do like you said, it's it's a less there's less writing on it, which is such a crappy thing to be <laughs> to say. But like it's yeah. true.
0: Yeah. They're not advertising to get everyone in the seats. They're just yeah. advertising to get the audience for that film in the seats.
1: It's kind of like everything everywhere all at once. Like we just mentioned that like that just it just happened to be a word of mouth thing. It wasn't like um, A24 went out of their way with marketing to try to get butts yeah. in seats. It was just it kind of very organically grew as the weeks slash months went on. And, and it's still kicking around. Like I remember a lot of people talking at The early stages about like awards and stuff and whether or not that would if it had enough steam to continue on to end of year and it obviously Mm -hmm. has
0: well that's our, our four questions uh now let's get into our movie
2: a fisherman in china
0: he'll never be anything but a fisherman in china but here he has hope he can dream of something better
2: these families came to America in different and harrowing conditions. This place symbolizes what they all managed to build. They didn't ask what this country could do for them, but what they could do to make this the greatest home of freedom in history.
0: A24 has released two films by a couple of guys with the same name that have become some so- some of the biggest touchstones of the medium in recent years. They are The Daniels. Revenge of the Green Dragons is also directed by two people with the same name, but unfortunately did not hit the same highs as Everything Everywhere All at Once or Swiss Army Man. The Andrews, that is Lau and Liu, teamed up to make this American-Chinese crime drama. Andrew Lau has a long and illustrious career in Chinese cinema, notably directing the Infernal Affairs trilogy, which later went on to be remade as The Departed, whose director Martin Scorsese appeared as a producer on Green Dragons. Andrew Liu had previously only directed one film and a handful of producer credits, mostly on Andrew Lau films in the 2000s. The film shows new immigrants to New York and how they are indebted, quite literally to the point of modern slavery, to their traffickers. Two young boys, Sonny and Stephen, are made into adopted brothers. When they are in their preteens, they join the brutally violent Green Dragons gang, who do the biddings of the traffickers by collecting payoff money and killing their enemies. Eventually, their crimes catch the attention of the FBI, where an agent, played by the late Ray Liotta, tries to take down the organization. The film premiered during the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival, and later received a day-and-date release in theaters and on VOD on September 24, 2014. A24 seemingly acquired the film sometime in 2014, but the timeline isn't exactly clear. A24 worked with DirecTV to have a VOD and theatrical release on the film alongside Enemy and Life After Beth, two films that premiered at TIFF the same year as Revenge. This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode, so if you have not watched the film, we suggest doing that so first. I think the starting off point for our conversation should be with you, Rachel. As a huge Infernal Affairs lover... This film covers similar ground in terms of street gangs and government agents tracking them. Did the film add anything to the gangster film canon for you? Or, as you already spoiled, it did not.
1: You said that so smugly. Like, hey, you love <laughs> Infernal Affairs? But you've got this movie... Justify this. I Yeah, I there is no justification. It's a bad movie. Like, Revenge of the Green Dragons, it, it's such a... I remember watching this and being so excited when it came out, because I was like, oh, cool, like... The guy who did Infernal Affairs, like he's got like a a Hollywood movie, and that's gonna be neat. And I was like, it's an Asian cast, and that's kind of cool. I watched just, and then I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, so then I rewatched it just this morning, and I was like, this is just as bad as I remember it. It's terrible. It might be even worse than I remember it to be honest, but um, yeah, it's just not good. There's a lot of it's a very piss poor script, and it's got some really crappy performances in it. Um, not Justin Chan, thankfully, who I adore, um, and it's incredibly like stereotypical, which is I find a very interesting point because the man who made it or the two men who made it are from Hong Kong; they're not from the West, and I do think that that kind of changes things oddly because it's their perception almost of what goes on in um, of what goes on in. Uh, in in America and like in in outside of, of Chinese territories, like that's kind of their impression of it, which is kind of interesting in its own way. Because yeah, if you watch Infernal Affairs or um, any other of Andrew Lau's work, uh, it's not like that. Like his his gangster movies, his triad stuff is very good, and um, it's just a shame that when he translates it into an American version of it, uh, he doesn't seem to carry that same thing. Like, I I think he just thought maybe, maybe he thought too hard on it and just thought he needs to make it so, so different from Hong Kong. Um, and it ends up being not good, a really bad movie, like an actively bad movie.
0: It, it feels a lot like someone that was described a Martin Scorsese movie and then said, yeah, I can do something like that. <laughs> and then not realizing what made a Martin Scorsese Crime gangster movie so good and just sort of failed at every aspect of imitating it.
1: I don't know. I like if you've if I know you still haven't seen Infernal Affairs, right?
0: I have not, no, but I, I, no. I'm I'm hoping to get the the new Criterion uh, box set uh, for yeah. Christmas. <laughs> it's on my wish list.
1: The a lot of a lot of like the shots, a lot of the way that it's filmed. It is very Andrew Lau like that is very much so his style and and you can see that in a lot of other things that he's done. Um, Infernal Affairs probably being his most famous overseas, but he was also uh, he also did a series called Young and Dangerous, which was massive in in Hong Kong at the time, Um, and and it's a very distinctly Andrew Lau style. And so I don't think he was trying to do like a Scorsese impression. Um, I that's just his like that's literally how he does films. I just, it just isn't, doesn't really translate very well in this movie. Like it just doesn't work. I I don't, I genuinely think maybe he just overthought things.
0: Now, what about Mm -hmm. you, Rose? Had you seen this movie before or is this your first time?
2: Uh, This was my first time. I hadn't heard of this movie before um, being invited to this episode. Um, I have seen Infernal Affairs, all three in the trilogy, um and I do really like the first one, especially um, but watching this movie i I think I didn't know it was by the uh the directors of Infernal Affairs until Rachel told me i had messaged, messaged her while I was watching, and I was like wow this is this is bad It's like an old Italian mafioso wrote this with like some weird stereotypical view of Chinese people in New york um yeah it was it was offensive and bad and I <laughs> struggled to keep my eyes on the screen while watching it
0: that's uh that's some pretty uh damning comments about this movie uh so yeah we're we're three for three and not liking this movie at all and and i I don't know what you you, you don't really use Letterboxd anymore, Rachel, so I don't know what star rating you gave it, but I saw, Rose, you gave it a half a star. I gave it one star, and that one star is basically for two reasons. One, I thought the opening montage was actually pretty cool. They did a very interesting job of of showing setting up this movie and showing what the, the trafficking is like for, for people that are new to America and how new immigrants are adapting to New York. And then the other half star, basically, to add it to one full star, is Justin Chan. And, and you are right, Rachel. He, he, he gives it his best. He gives it his all in a role, in a performance that just doesn't really care. And I think that's just basically the nicest way of putting it.
1: I think he's, I could be wrong. I believe he's the only, of the people playing Chinese people, he's the only not Chinese person playing Chinese person, everyone else is actually Chinese, and uh, yeah, it's a shame on our people that he's the best one there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that maybe uh, one person that should be singled out for uh, an especially poor performance is Harry Shum Jr., who uh, most people probably know from Glee and uh, probably is going to be one of the leads in the follow up to Crazy Rich Asians. But uh, oof, what, a, what a lackluster performance from him. One, we're supposed to believe that he's this like older brother character in this gang. You know, the leader of the gang. They call him Dilo. Uh, oh, no. They do they, they call a, a different character Dilo, don't they?
1: No, he's Dilo as well. He's Dilo, Dilo doesn't, right. Which means- I also took issue with the subtitle because they kept saying that was Big Brother. And I'm like, that doesn't mean Big Brother. And I don't know how Andrew <laughs> Lau would let that go because it's, it's like a boss. Like Dilo is yeah. a boss. That you call them. That's why so many people get called Dilo in that. But he's, um, yeah, he he is that. He's I I love Harry Shum Jr. because um I just love him. I think he's a really cool guy, and um he's horribly miscast in this movie. Because as you were Mm -hmm. saying, sorry, just as I rudely interrupted you, like he is meant to be this kind of older boss, and but he looks like him and Justin sean I think are around the same age. So
0: Justin Chon is a year older than him.
1: Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's very, it's it's an it's an odd casting, and maybe it's just because they just didn't have enough people to like a, enough of a pool to dig into. But
0: and he's a, he's a t- bit of a celebrity too. He's a catch.
1: Yes, I would put like Jin in that role, um, who plays a detective. Uh for those who don't know, who didn't watch One Hundred Six in Park back in the day, Jin was a, a or he still is a rapper. Um, but he, he could have been a better boss, I think, but maybe cause he's a bit shorter. Harry Shum Jr. Is quite tall.
0: Yeah. It, it was just so weird because we, we get h- introduced to his character, Paul Dilo, uh, in the, first scenes when the the two young boys are literally young boys and so he looks that age and then it's like fast forward 10 plus years and he still looks the same but all of a sudden you've got the two main characters justin chon and kevin woo who look older than him and he's supposed to be this father figure to them he's this you know grizzled mob boss sort of thing and and all you see is this very pretty face who is attempting to look badass while still being the you know i'm a legit businessman character that we often see as a trope in different gangster movies of i have real businesses i'm not a criminal look at my legitimate uh, shops that i own sort of thing um but it just really does not work in every scene he's in just like normally he's so charismatic it just sucks all the energy out of the room because he's just so miscast
1: I think he would have been better in the Stephen Wong role, like as Sonny's friend. I think the two of them would have been better as like buddies and then get... The Maybe, slave. yeah, because I, I he could he be, be a little confident. bit
0: more playful then.
1: Yeah, exactly, because Harry... Shum, I don't I don't really look at Harry Shum Jr. and think authoritarian. I think yes. more of just like a fun kind of dude who's who's really cool. And yeah, but yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, Rose, did you, do you have any strong f- thoughts on Harry Shum Jr.?
2: Yeah, he was kind of a nothing in this film. And um, I guess you could also mention Kev Jumpa who played Steven. He is like a famous YouTuber, especially in like Asian American circles. He's pretty well known, but it was very strange to see him in the movie when he's known for like comedy sort of stuff online. And I wonder if that was... Also, like his um, star power in the YouTube world was supposed to help this movie, but I don't think it did.
1: I don't really know him very much. I know I, when I looked him up, I knew that he was. Uh, I, I saw he was a YouTuber, and I was kind of surprised, but I'm not very familiar. Is he kind of like a like a Wong Fu kind of thing? Is that the
2: yeah? One? He came yeah. out around the same time as Wong Fu, and then mm. another uh, Japanese American YouTuber called. Um, Niga Higa Uh, I think I know him yeah yeah so when I was in high school they were very popular I didn't actually watch that much of their content because it was very like you know smosh and like college humor that sort of level
0: yeah I was familiar that uh, of the name Kev Shamba and and in this he goes by his his real name Kevin Wu Uh, so I had nothing really to sort of base what his persona is like but I, I thought, you know, as a sort of unhinged best friend, he did a fairly decent job. Obviously, Justin Chon as Sunny is the is the one person who kind of grounds this film, and we mostly follow his character arc and the the complications that he feels of, you know, doing the right thing and being a member of a family. But I thought Kevin Wu or did a pretty good job of sort of being the the opposite of him, but still sort of grounding their friendship in a believable way that you understand that these guys do believe that they're brothers because they were sort of, it's a weird plot point, but when they arrive in America, they're basically um, Justin John's Sonny is basically told that he is now brothers with Steven. And, and that's just, it. There, there's not really much of an explanation there other than for trafficking purposes because he lost his parents along the way or they never came. It, it's not really clear how that situation played out. But either way, he um, is an orphan and so he is basically placed into a home with, uh, with Steven's family. And I thought they did a, a, a pretty good job of being adoptive brothers in that sense.
1: I think the setup of the characters is interesting, like with Sunny and Steve. I think that it's they like like you said like they do a good job setting everything up right at the very beginning um mm-hmm. but and and you can kind of believe yeah like they're they're um they have a good you know little brotherly bond between the two of them um and i, get, I think the reason like they're like oh your brothers is cuz he is an orphan and then paul wong is is like because they're looking to recruit young people for the gang, and so they're like, he doesn't have a family, so it's fine. Just go with this guy. I'm um, go like you look after them, and then and then the mum is is like, uh, why you know? And she and sh- they do yeah. a good job of showing like she does not care for Sunny. Like Sunny a bit of an outlier, um, more of a burden than an actual adopted son to her. Um, but they don't really play with that too much later on in the movie. Like there is interesting threads there, but they never really talk about that like any kind of strain Conflict between the two have, yeah yeah, like which would be obvious because the mother obviously heavily favors her biological son and and um has like has resentment towards Sonny. like i'm just saying that as a what i would assume is going on like they don't actually really show that in the movie ver- un- uh save for the very very first scene when she has some mm-hmm. objection to it um but yeah the, like there there could have been some more interesting character i don't want to say character study i think that that's a bit too like serious but like there just could have been a bit more interesting like character textures to to sunny to steven to their relationship and then later on um between sunny and uh tina who's kind of the main girl if you will um like that it just does it feels very nothing like it's 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 unlike movies like infernal affairs or young and dangerous like they don't really spend too long trying to actually develop characters they're more looking for just um plot gangster shoot 'em up kind of things
2: i'll admit i was confused which child was which at the beginning yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> and then and while i was watching the i had the subtitles on and I could understand the English and the Cantonese, but when it started going into other dialects, I struggled to understand what was happening.
1: Yeah, they bounce around a lot, and I, I, I find that I always find that really interesting in movies when they do that when they talk like they speak Mandarin. I don't, I don't know if they go past or no. There's a bit of Hokkien, I think maybe at some point, um, but it, it's primarily between Cantonese and Mandarin, and it's. It, to me, it's kind of funny because it's like Harry Shum Jr. I think he only speaks Cantonese. Therefore, that's why his character speaks Cantonese. Um, but his Cantonese is not perfect. Like he speaks it like how I speak it, which is not great. Um, but his is probably better than mine. So, And, and then Justin Chan, as I said, he's Korean. So he doesn't speak any Chinese, any dialect whatsoever. Um, but yeah, it is kind of funny. They, they bounce around between that. But for people who have, to, I, I mean, it's a complaint about subtitles, but you kind of have to read them even though you know the language sometimes and you just have to, I don't know, double-check it because it's just bouncing around too quickly.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's that's sort of an issue I know a lot of people that speak more than one language face when they're watching films, when they're like, yeah, the gist of it is sort of similar, but like the actual prose is different than, than what you're reading on the screen. And that always sort of creates an interesting dynamic of what is the actual text of the movie is it what the subtitles are saying or is it what they're actually speaking
1: it's i mean this is a conversation probably for a different episode which could be an interesting episode but I, you know mm-hmm. they need to hire better people to do subtitles like you need to hire proper translators for subtitles because it isn't just about translating word for word you have to um this actually came up relatively recently um i think it was about squid games i want to say
0: Oh, yeah, I heard about that.
1: I think there was like a, a bit of a thing when Squid Games came out and there were Korean speaking people who were like, it's not like the nuance on the text is just in, in the dialogue just isn't being translated properly. And the, and you need to put money in like it can't just be, oh, this person on staff speaks a bit of Korean, like, let, let's get them in. Like, you need to actually mm-hmm. really spend money, especially if, you know, a company like Netflix, for example, that is trying to do a lot um, with non-English films whether it's Korean or I know they do a lot of Indian movies as well you have to put the subtitle like put the effort in and put the resources in to make sure that your subtitles are good uh I think generally for this movie like the Cantonese subtitles like I can't speak to the Mandarin or the other subtitles but the Cantonese subtitles I I know I complained about the dialogue big brother thing but generally like (laughs) it's it's okay like it's fine it kind of gets the point like the little things that they end up Skipping over, I can understand why they skip over it, but um, it's not like yeah, it's not perfect, but then you know when I watch an Italian movie or a Spanish movie, like I'm none the wiser myself, mm-hmm. so as as long as it kind of comes across
0: that, that, that's definitely an interesting debate, and I feel like if it comes up again on like at a like an end of the year story where we're covering like, hey, squid game was the biggest show of the year, but there was issues with the subtitling, then that's probably another conversation to be had. But sort of moving on to talk about the movie a bit more, this is a, a pretty graphic film. I was quite surprised. And obviously, violence in, in mob and gangster movies is, is very commonplace. Uh, but I was a little surprised at the amount that it was to the point where it felt gratuitous. Rose, did you have any sort of uh, objections to the violence depicted in this movie? Or did you think that it was just sort of part of the course? Or, or what were your thoughts on, on the way it was graphically depicted?
2: I thought there was a lot of violence that was gratuitous and un- unnecessary and pretty ugly to look at. Um, and then the idea of that uh, all the characters being part of gangs um, who, who were just sort of left to fester in Chinatown and, and sort of like attack each other and attack innocent people. It was just, it was too unbelievable to me. Like these are not the way, that humans, um, I mean, th- there was no motivation. A lot of times to their violence, like they were humiliating children in the school uh, with like um, poop, essentially, <laughs> and um, like cutting off body parts during a torture scene. Which it didn't seem like they were going to get any information out of this guy, but they were. They were still going to just continue removing like teeth and fingers from him. Um yeah, it was just like the, the this doesn't make sense. Like why would a crime organization do all this stuff so openly and like for no reason? They 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 use the reason that oh uh the police don't care about Chinese people, so just don't shoot any white people. That that's the like rule. But it just it didn't make sense. Like how could any organization like stay um Say viable if they were being so open about their violence i feel like that kind of goes back to what i was saying
1: about andrew Lau not fully understanding or like it's it's more his idea of what cops in the states and and you know the tension between chinese communities and white communities are like i think that that's his impression that he's projected onto the film because i love this part when um when steve does kill a white guy at the restaurant and then when he's telling the boss and he's just like i killed the he's like he's struggling to get the word white out because it's such (laughs) it's like man i killed a white guy and the guy's like oh my god i told you not to kill white people um i do i thought i thought it was very funny that like their whole like you said rose like the entire premise of them being able to get away with what they get away with like throwing chinese like dead bodies into dumpsters with blood just everywhere the only reason they can get away with that was like, oh well they're not white. So it's fine. Like they don't care. And like I get you're trying to make a point maybe that the police aren't as keen to solve murders that aren't for white people. And especially in the eighties mm-hmm. in New York. Like I, I understand where they're trying to go with that. Um, but it was again, like like we were saying about the characters, it's not very nuanced, is it? It's not a very complex way of presenting it. They're just literally like it's okay like as long as as long as you're not white as long as you're not killing white mm-hmm. people we're fine don't worry about it police don't give a shit about us um and even though you have a like a police officer who is chinese like they're still like oh he and he's and his they have his whole thing too where he's like I've only been a detective for 6 months and they put us on the job why and then Billy Magnuson's character is like, oh, yeah, right, because he's, he's Chinese. I get it. It was very stupid. Like, it was just very... <laughs> such a broad stroke, so superficial, the way that they presented that argument, yeah. which is, like, a legit argument to make in a film, but not this way.
2: Very on the nose. The dialogue was mm-hmm. so bad. There was that one line, <laughs> that some, someone utters, um, always shoot a guy in head, like, taking candy from baby. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> the dialogue was yeah. so so bad it was terrible it was so bad
0: yeah i i brought up the violence because you know i i think in a movie like this you can kind of get away with a couple scenes of really intense violence to sort of set the scene of this is what these people are capable of this is why you should be afraid of them this is why that they're, they're not actually the good guys all that sort of stuff and so you can get away with a little bit but there's like after this great opening montage when then they're they set up the world that they live in afterwards after setting the stage it's just scene after scene of some really brutal like torture and violence that just made no sense like there's a scene where um where sunny is looking for steven and he goes into a pool hall and these older gang members literally like whack him with a pool cue as he's running towards them which would probably kill most people but they're doing this to a little child. And then when they finally find Stephen, he is being hung from the ceiling, tied at his wrists, with his bare feet on an ice block while he's basically in his underwear. And a whole bunch of adults are using his body as a punching bag. And it's just like, what? Where is this coming from? And like, yeah, that interrogation scene went on a little bit too far as you were talking about Rose where like they clearly weren't getting information from him. So they were just enjoying the aspect of torturing him. If that was like the sort of the centerpiece and you go to a film of like Goodfellas where the hand in the vice scene, that's Mm -hmm. the centerpiece of violence in that movie. And that's the one that sticks out. Whereas in this, it's just so much. It just sort of all got a little muddy together of like, man, this is a brutal movie that just like is demoralizing and I don't know why there's so much violence in it. Like it just didn't make sense from a viewer perspective.
2: And also
1: some unnecessary, um, or a unnecessary like rape scene for no reason mm-hmm. whatsoever. Like that was yeah. so unnecessary. And I was like, you do not need to like, for the most part, I think, well, actually not for the most part, like uh, with the exception of, uh, what they call like the snakehead woman the the woman in charge of the entire smuggling ring with the exception of her pretty much all the women in the film are used as like a prop for the men to get their stuff done like tina is um the daughter and then she ends up getting killed as well because she she very stupidly decided to testify <laughs> like who does that um but then and then the other two women who don't really have names like they're just brought into this one scene and the girl is taking a shower when they invade the apartment and it's like they're literally there just so that at the end they can get gang raped and it's like that's very unnecessary and you don't need to you don't need to show that in the slightest like it was very very unnecessary for what they were trying to come across like put across in the film
0: i think one of the last aspects i i kind of want to touch on is sort of connecting this movie where most of the time when you have crime movies you have two elements you have the 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 crime organization the syndicate and then the either the police or the law enforcement agencies that are then trying to solve the crimes and that's usually where a lot of the tension uh and heightened stakes sort of come from of how much can one criminal get away with or an organization get away with before their sins sort of catch up with them and i actually felt like this movie sort of started Eventually, playing similar beats to The Departed. I haven't seen Infernal Affairs, so I can't comment on on how similar it is to that. But it sort of just sort of started feeling a little bit closer to the way that The Departed was going, with you know a conflicted member of the organization and talking to the FBI and the FBI trying to chase after them. And, and that's not exactly an original trope. That is a very common trope. But my issue with this is. The investigation aspect of this movie started way too late in this movie. We spend so much just setting up this gang organization and structure and what they do as a business that by the time the, the the law enforcement aspect of it came into play, it was near the end of the movie, and it just felt so rushed, and none of it really had a good payoff. You know, we get some scenes early on with a detective as played by Jin and then his partner, Billy Magnuson, who I completely forgot was in this movie until you brought him up. Um... Because he's basically in I think like one or two scenes only. Two scenes, yeah. And it just <laughs> two great scenes. It, yeah. And it just it just took way too long to sort of set the stakes into motion. And by the time they did, it just was so rushed and 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 shortened that I, I didn't get any sort of satisfaction. I didn't care at all. It was just very odd of of why they were introducing it at the time that they did and not earlier. Yeah, I think
1: um you know, especially like Ray Liotta's the 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 weird aspect of the FBI, like because if what they're trying to focus on is this massive, I mean, okay, so we should probably say this movie is based off of a true a true story, quote unquote, um, or mm-hmm. sorry, the true story is true. The based on is a little bit wonky, um, <laughs> but there 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 was like a mass, um, what do we call it? like a, a smuggling, like a human traffic, not human trafficking, but like. Um, you know, this woman whose name was, what was her name? Sister Ping, I think. That Snakehead that they Mama. Her. In real life, her name was like Sister oh. Ping or something. And she smuggled in like a ton of Chinese people into America. And it was one of like, at the very end, they have some captions and shows. And it, it was, it was like a massive deal at the time. And I do remember reading about it, not at the time when it happened, but like later on in life, I remember reading about it. So... <clears throat> the kind of the core thing that they were going after. And this was about immigration and they pepper that in so randomly throughout the movie, but it's also a gangster movie because the, some of the, the kids that got smuggled in ended up going into the gangs. And to me, it's like, you're fighting between, is this a gangster? Is this a movie about gangsters or is this a movie about immigration and um, the smuggling ring that happened? Because that is an actual, very interesting story. But then Mm -hmm. because they want to focus so much in on the gangster stuff, but then they feel like, oh, shit, we have to tack on this immigration thing. It it feels exactly like that. It feels tacked on. And it doesn't make any sense. And Ray Liotta's whole FBI stuff feels like, I honestly forget that he's in the movie. Like, when I saw him, I saw Ray Liotta. I was like, oh, yeah, Ray Liotta is in this movie. I completely forgot about that entire storyline, which is a very important storyline. Um, and then Jin's character and Billy Magnuson's character. Yeah, I don't really know what the point of them was other than the little twist at the end with Jin, but it, you know, they, it, it's not very cat and mouse like, which like you said mm-hmm. is, is, and that's a huge thing in Infernal Affairs, um, in which The Departed is, I mean, it's an adaptation of, of Infernal Affairs, but like that's the whole point is it, it is the cat yeah. and mouse, which like you said is a trope that has been done many, many times and it's it can be a good one like it's a very exciting kind of movie when you have someone looking for somebody or someone trying to solve something um or trying to trap them or something like that but this one just didn't have that it felt like it was just trying to be a bunch of things and it never quite ended up being any of them really
2: Mm -hmm. and that lack of focus made it really hard to watch as well because it was just scene after scene of violence and there was no nothing that seemed like um but stop them! Like Ray Liotta's character was so far apart uh, from what was going on, and he mm-hmm. couldn't get in either. Like he couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, even I though think- they, I'm pretty sure they left clues everywhere because they were so messy in their violence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't against white people, so it's fine. They didn't care. They were like, "It's yeah. it's okay. Don't worry about it." Um, I do want to say we've been talking about Justin Chong being really good in this movie and he did, he, he's probably the best thing about this movie. Um, but I actually liked Jin in this movie cause he's, I'm not used to seeing him in like an acting role um, or with hair, which was very funny cause he's usually shaved headed. Um, but he was, he, I actually thought he was pretty great in this and I was like, Oh, Jin should do more movies. And I think he's done some um, in Hong Kong and in China, but, um yeah, I, I haven't really ever seen him act before and that was kind of a that was a nice little treat.
0: Yeah, I guess we can talk uh, a little bit about that twist too. Like we said, this is a spoiler-filled episode, but this is I guess the the real, real spoiler warning. Um That was the dumbest twist in the world because <laughs> I don't feel like they set it up to have a like a eh, the, 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 the reason for a good twist is when it finally happens, you go, oh my God, how did I not see that? That, that was there in front of me the whole time, you know, the, the breadcrumbs were there. And I look back and I'm just like, there were no breadcrumbs. There was nothing to reveal this twist, which I'm about to reveal, is that Jin was basically the detective was working for the gang as well. And he shows up at the very end, just as Harry Shum Jr. is about to be murdered. Um, and instead, the would-be killer ends up getting killed that's the twist and it's just like what where did this come from did, was this now Rachel since you've seen it twice i feel like you probably can speak to this best going in the second time watching it knowing the twist was it there was it played out at all were there the breadcrumbs or or was it just out of the blue as i'm saying it
1: no it's just out of the blue like they do a little montage before um they do a little montage before they show um Who the killer is, or no? Do they do it after? I'm trying to think. Anyways, around that time, and they show like a montage of the breadcrumbs they think that they've laid out. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like the little bits of dialogue is like, "Hey, don't I know you?" It's like, "Oh, I know. I know more than you think." Like, that's literally it. Like, they don't. They don't (laughs) really show anything else. And it goes back to the point of what Rose said. You know, it's a lack of focus. Like, you don't. There's just not enough there to say that, you know, there was this potential that he he was a bit of a skewed cop and um it's also you know funny that like he he's complaining about oh like you know p- they don't care about like chinese people and this and then the one chinese cop ends up being like a crooked cop as well which is kind of a funny little detail but yeah i one thing i'll say though in that scene um rose you've seen infernal affairs so you can tell you can
2: mm-hmm.
1: we can talk about this but you know like when he um are we, yeah, we're in spoiler. when Sonny raises the gun up to Paul Wong, to Harry Shum Jr., and at the end when um they're in the parking garage, didn't it seem like a really knockoff, like Andrew Lau was just trying to knock off his own shot of um Andy Lau and Tony Leung on um like yes. on the IFC building in Infernal Affairs?
2: Yes, very much.
1: And it's funny when a director wants to knock off their own work.
2: Yeah. And then just
1: the idea of a twist was also yeah. very um, infernal, infernal Affairs. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I feel like he made, I don't know. It's like he had, it's like, this is his way of adapting his own movie into an American culture, but having no idea about American culture either. Um, but that shot in the parking garage, it just really made me laugh. Cause I was like, this is such a lesser version of what you've already done. And it had it not been him, i had been like, Oh, you're just trying to copy Infernal Affairs, but he made Infernal Affairs. So I don't really know what to say about that. <laughs>
0: I mean, there's also a long history of uh, filmmakers who are, are popular in their home country who eventually make movies in the English language and end up either straight up remaking their own movies or have enough overlap where it's like, oh, this is clearly their attempt at making an English language version of a previous film of theirs. So it wouldn't surprise me in the least that you know, this is this is Andrew Lau being like, "Hey, I want to make Infernal Affairs for the American audience." Although I can't really just do Infernal Affairs because that's already been done as The Departed, but I'm going to do something that is similar enough to it.
1: I get, I'm like, I don't know too much about the production of this, and I want to give Andrew Lau the benefit of the doubt just because he has made two particular, like, he's he's done a lot of movies, but um, in particular, two series that he's made, which I've already mentioned, Infernal Affairs, and then Young and Dangerous. Um, they are very good. And they are very, um, like, not just that they're very good, like they were very defining, especially in Hong Kong cinema, like it, Young and Dangerous in the 90s, Infernal Affairs in the uh, early 2000s. You know, he he he's a very, very capable director. And I do wonder if there was something else that when he came here, maybe some of the reins were taken away from him, maybe some of the creative decisions, like, because he didn't write this on his own. He did write this with um, somebody named Michael Di Giacomo. Giacomo. Di Giacomo, mm-hmm. who sounds Italianish. I don't want to make any assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there's a potential that maybe he got over, like, like vetoed out of meetings as well. You know, and like his what he wanted to do, they didn't let him do it because um, they were like, no, no, be quiet, Chinese man. We're going to do it this way. Um, because you don't know America, you don't know these things, so. I would love to give him the benefit of the doubt and say maybe he had some interference, not necessarily by A24 because they didn't produce this, but by um, the production team, which I do looking at their names now, like none of them are Asian themselves, or at least their surnames aren't Asian. So, Um, But yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe that was the case. And I I would feel much better about that if that was the case, because I do like Andrew Lau's work. (laughs) They're very good.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't know what to make of that. Um, Rosa, do, do you have any other points you want to uh, bring up about your thoughts on this film?
2: Um, Well, while I was watching, I was trying to find one good thing about the movie. And I think it looks like they did actually shoot in New York. There was one scene where um, they go to, I guess, the New York library. And I was like, oh, it looks like they actually are there. Among the stacks, and they did go to Hong Kong. I think it did look like Hong Kong. So,
1: is that really the one positive thing you could take? Well, <laughs> congratulations! A job in New York shot City. in New York. <laughs>
2: That's great. Good for them. Yeah, I guess they have that tiny bit of authenticity, but everything else was was offensive.
0: We don't have anything really nice to say at this point. I think we're just sort of nitpicking of the worst aspects of, of a movie that just straight up doesn't work on, on every level. Uh, if, if neither of you have any points, uh, final points you want to raise, then we can, we can move on to our, our game section. Uh, do you feel comfortable with that or do you have any last things you want to bring up?
2: Oh, we can move on. This is a, not a great movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> move on and hopefully forget it.
2: It's just so disappointing
1: to me that this is the first of like A24's venture into the the trendy world of of racial diversification in their films and like <laughs> it just is such a shame that this is the one that it is. And I can understand why they almost picked it cuz it's it's Andrew Lau and um I don't think Justin Chong was a really big deal yet at the time, but I think it was Andrew Lau's name and obviously Scorsese all um put his name on it too. So I can understand where yeah. why they chose it, but um yeah, it just sucks. But yeah, I I mentioned it to Rose um before. I thought like this is actually like a good idea for an article because it's it's about, you know, sometimes movies like this they are going to fail and they are going to suck and that's okay. Like but they should be allowed to suck and we should be able to give them a second chance. Like Andrew Lau should get a second chance to do a Hollywood movie if he wanted to. Um not just because this movie failed cuz plenty of people have made crappy movies and have been, have been able to come back. Um so yeah, It's okay that this is bad. It just kind of sucks that it is.
0: Well, I uh, have a bit of a revelation for you. This was Andrew Lau's second Hollywood film, by the way. He had a movie in 2007 called The Flock that starred Richard Gere and Claire Danes.
1: Oh, wow. Go, Andrew. And it doesn't sound good either. Maybe he just should stay in Hong Kong then. I don't know. <laughs> Cause he's made great. Like je I, I don't know how to really come across how important young and dangerous and infernal affairs. Those two series of films are like they, they they're not the best, but okay. Infernal affairs is very, very good. But like in young and dangerous isn't as well made, but it was a very, oh, there's big like six kind of, of them too. Yeah. It was a really big like pop culture thing in, in Hong Kong back then. And all the people who are involved, like they went on to be massive, massive stars on their own too. So uh, that's why I give a lot of leeway to Andrew Lau because he did. He is behind some really great, seminal Hong Kong f- films, and I'm willing to pass that he doesn't know how to direct a white person film. Whatever, who cares?
0: Maybe I don't know what his his English is like. Maybe that was a bit of a struggle for him. Is working in the United States and there was a bit of a language barrier. I don't know. It was like at this point, I feel like we're sort of grasping at straws to figure out what went wrong with this movie. Was it, was it the, the co-screenwriter? Was it the influence of executive producer Martin Scorsese? Was it, was it him trying to adapt an earlier film of his, but couldn't make it too similar? I, I just, I feel like there's so many different angles you could look at, at maybe the downfall of this movie. At the end of the day, it's just a movie that just wasn't very good.
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to defend Andrew Lau because I just want people to know he's not (laughs) that bad. He's not this bad of a director. Like this is not indicative of his abilities as a director. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's take a (laughs) short break. And when we come back, we're going to get to our games. Okay, so the first game we're going to play is our double Bill pairing and Rose, I'm very excited to see what movie you want you think would make a good double bill pairing with Revenge of the Green Dragons.
2: My initial thought was definitely Infernal Affairs because it's actually an amazing movie um, and I like it more than the departed, <laughs> which is uh... which is correct Rose, <laughs> which is correct. Yeah. So I hope that people who like the departed <laughs> would watch Infernal Affairs and just see an actually, I mean a really great like cop movie cop uh, cops and robbers or sort the of like cat and mouse movie. Um, but because I wouldn't actually want someone to watch it right next to Revenge of the Green Dragons. Cause I don't want people to watch Revenge of the Green Dragons. I would say if you want to be <laughs> really offended, but maybe like turn it into a drinking game or somehow, um, Maybe Dragon Ball Evolution. Something that's uh, oh. really... This is not a movie I've seen, but it is, uh, uh, I think, equally offensive to people, especially Chinese people, because um, it is a beloved um, like anime manga that was adapted in 2009, I think, uh, in Hollywood, and uh, it had white actors playing these Japanese characters and uh, the movie is rated extremely poorly so I feel like if you wanted to watch something and make fun of it the entire time you could watch these two together
1: just really go for broke on that one you're saying if you're going to (laughs) watch a bad movie watch two bad movies in a row yeah
0: Yeah, this movie uh, Dragon Ball Evolution shockingly has a 0.8 rating on Letterboxd which I don't think I've seen a movie with that low of a score. It basically peaks at half a star and then the next highest is one star. And then it's basically zeros across the board. No one was rating this movie at all higher than a one star film, which is not surprising Mm -hmm. at all, but uh, damn you uh, that's going to be a real entertaining night at the, at the cinema. So, so thank you, Rose. I'm going to be very drunk after watching these two together. (laughs) Rachel, what
1: about you? Um, actually, why don't you go first? I had a few options, and I just want to make sure I didn't we didn't have the short sure. one. okay, yeah.
0: So Andrew Lau directed the Infernal Affairs films as we've talked about quite a bit, uh and it was remade as the departed which we've also talked about quite a bit, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, who serves as executive producer on this film. After being bored to tears by this cat and mouse crime saga, you might as well just go to the best and watch another Ray Liotta gangster classic in Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese. So you got lots of these tie-ins working all together. I already mentioned earlier with the, you know, the infamous hand in the vice scene is the, the, the sort of the main touch point of violence in that movie. But really, it's a classic in the gangster genre for a reason. It is a well-crafted, well-scripted, well-acted, well-directed, well-shot film that, um, yeah, probably gets a little overrated by the film bro community these days. But like any good movie, uh, there is some truth behind it. And uh, it's a really great film. So so Goodfellas is my pick.
1: My hot take about Goodfellas is I think... Or I pref- I shouldn't say it's a better movie. I prefer to watch that over Godfather. I think Goodfellas. Oh, interesting. Is- I prefer watching Goodfellas over God. Like I've only seen Godfather maybe once, maybe twice actually. Um, but Goodfellas, I've seen multiple times. As with Casino as well. I think those are better than not better. I mm-hmm. think they're just more enjoyable to watch. Um, anyways, so no, you did not copy what I what I was going to do, or not copy me, but you know you you didn't <laughs> pick the same one. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was like Rose. I thought about Infernal Affairs. Um, I thought that was a bit too obvious. And I figured it would come up uh, a bit during this conversation. I think Young and Dangerous is also an interesting one. Because I know that not a lot of people outside of Hong Kong might know about it. Um, and those are really fun. Especially the first, uh, first three-ish are really quite good. And it does, I mean, like any series that goes on for past the three mark it becomes a, b- a bit much but there are fun movies and um yeah they launched the career for for many careers of many uh hong kong actors but i was the, the two that i was struggling between more in terms of picking was either justin Chan's uh gook which was from 2017 and he directed that and he's also stars in it. And it takes place in the early nineties during the LA riots, which I believe was in 92. Um, And it's Uh about a couple of Korean American brothers who befriend uh, a black girl. And and it's just about the Korean community and the black community during that time. Um, It's a great, great, great movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Justin Chan's an incredible director and, Uh, He directed Blue Bayou. I think that was last year as well. Um, And Mm -hmm. he's done other things like Ms. Purple too, which is a great movie. Um, He's incredibly talented. So if you're looking for a better Justin Chan vehicle, I'd say Gook is a good one. In terms of the plot though, I was thinking um, Lucky Grandma would be an interesting one to look at. Oh, that was a fun one. Yeah. And that one's like, it's a funny movie. It does involve, like it's set in New York as well. And it's about like a woman who goes and not to a fortune teller, but basically she's told that like, she'll have a very auspicious day and she then she, she bets all of her life savings into a casino. And then what ends up happening is um, she kind of gets mixed up with a gang in New York or a couple gangs in New York. And yeah. And it's just, it's a funny movie. And it also has a uh, side chin in it who is, Um, an amazing, amazing actress. And uh, yeah, so I thought Lucky Grandma might be a good one too. So I'm either going to go Lucky Grandma or Gook. I don't know which one, but both of them are good double pairings. Nice. Okay,
0: Uh, so now the next question I have to ask is, would you rather? So Rose, you can ask us a would you rather question. We just got to think about it and it shouldn't be too easy. So what is your would you rather question for us?
2: All right. Um, Would you rather be a cop trying to infiltrate a gang or a gang member trying to infiltrate the
0: police. Mm. That's an interesting one. Um, yeah, because I feel like both of them are uh, career hazards uh, that you will face: is uh, being killed for your uh, disloyalty um, to the crime family. So that's a that's a that's an interesting one. And I know you're basically just. Uh, Reciting the plot of Infernal Affairs <laughs> here for this question. Um,
1: what do you think what about you, you Rachel? Get away what would with? you pick? I was raised on triad movies, and the triads were the coolest people ever. And I always thought it'd be really cool to be a member of the triads. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm gonna go with gang member infiltrating the police because I feel like that's cooler. That's a cooler thing to do than mm. be in the police and be like a snitch. I ain't no snitch.
0: Yeah, I I, th- I think that's fair, and I feel like you're even though the way these movies end, uh, they're the one that dies, um, I feel like it's probably a little bit safer being a gangster trying to infiltrate the police because then you at least have the gang's protection as opposed to the other way around because the police won't kill you. Well, they shouldn't. Um, you're more likely to be arrested, whereas if the gang finds out you're actually a cop, they will kill you. So I'm going to go with uh, the gangster trying to infiltrate the police.
1: I would say a gang would provide better protection than the police would be able to provide protection. Oh, absolutely! And yeah,
2: yeah, that's what I meant. So I yeah. would, yeah. Rose, which one would you choose? I think it would be easier for me to infiltrate the police than the gangs because <laughs> I don't have the the uh, the bravado or the the desire for crime that would get me that would that would convince them that I wasn't um, a cop. But I would be organized enough to get to the police academy.
1: You'd be a great gang member. You could just, you know, <laughs> you'd just be very organized and like do the admin stuff for them and just mm, be like, yeah. guys, come on, like let's not be so violent here. Let's come on. <laughs> yeah, come on, you guys. Let's, <laughs> let's chill. Every <laughs> gang needs some honor. The, their money. Yeah, yeah.
2: Don't skim off the heroin. I, I measure. <laughs> I hate it. Um, Daco- what about you, Rachel? Dakota, what is you- your question? I'm going to tell me- you to
1: go first. Yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. Uh, this is how I can tell that you haven't thought of a question. Yeah, yet.
1: I can't. Um, <laughs> impossible. I couldn't think of one to like save my life. Keep going.
0: So much like Rose, my my question has more to do with the filmmakers than the film. Would you rather watch North American filmmakers remake beloved non English films, dumbing them down for audiences? Or see international filmmakers struggle at adapting their style for English language audiences.
2: Oh God! Oh.
0: Yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it?
2: So, if, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no go,
1: Rose. I'm, I'm still thinking. I was just trying to fill in the dead air. <laughs> like, okay, yeah,
2: you go, you go. Uh, yeah, I think uh, if you hear one of your favorite international directors is trying something in Hollywood you would go and watch it. But if you heard that Hollywood was adapting something by one of your favorite filmmakers, you probably would avoid it. So I feel like I'd give more of a chance to the, fa- um, to the favorite director than to an adaptation of their work, of their beloved work.
1: Yeah, my thought process is like, I'm so sick of Hollywood taking everything from every other country and turning it into either something really bad. um, Like the old boy. uh, That's a good example of just an excellent movie that was turned into something terrible. Um, And it's annoying or like versus even when it's done well, like something like the departed, which is a good movie. And, you're adapting a great movie as well. Uh, The thing that kind of bothers me, not bothers me about it's like, but I know a ton of people who don't realize that The Departed was not an adaptation. And I've heard people be like, I can't believe that that's an adaptation. Like, I can't believe that that's not Scorsese's original idea. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, what do you mean? You can't (laughs) like, what do you mean? You can't believe that this is a Hong Kong movie, that that's what they like, that's Mm -hmm. what they took it from. And, and there's like a level of disrespect there that never sat right with me. The other side of it is I've never like, I don't like the, and we talked about everything everywhere all at once. Like the the fact that people are being like, Oh, finally, Michelle Yeoh is getting her shot here. Like finally this is happening for her. And I'm like, Michelle Yeoh has had an incredible career overseas and has been a legend and Mm -hmm. an icon for a very, very long time. She didn't need Hollywood. There's a reason her and Tony Leung, like the two of them didn't, they never really, not that they didn't try for Hollywood. Like, well, Tony Long definitely didn't. He said in interviews before that um, the reason that he hadn't been in a Hollywood movie yet, because he was like, well, why? I get really, really good roles in Hong Kong, and I get to do the movies yeah. that I want to do. When I come to ha- Hollywood, like there's only a very particular type of movie that they're going to let me in. And so I I don't like the idea of people looking at Hollywood like the be-all and end-all of any filmmaker, whether you're a director or an actor, um, that this is the pinnacle of filmmaking and i don't like that so um and i don't like that so i and like especially the michelle yo thing that was really always been bothering me like this last year of people just thinking like oh she's made it and i'm like shut up she made it a long time ago um <laughs> so yeah so I'll, like in that sense i don't that's a tricky question
0: it's also tough because while you you're, you're pointing out all that stuff we've also seen the opposite where we have seen you know decent remakes of movies made into English and we've also seen filmmakers who who predominantly don't work in English who make the transition to Hollywood and have made successful films as well so like it's one of those things where it's like yeah on the surface I don't like it when when movies are remade for the English language audience but you know every once in a while they're is some good ones too. So it's it's one of those things where I I wrote this question and I realized just how tricky of a thing to answer it is because on the surface, it's mostly bad for either one. But at the same time, there's also good um, examples for both sides of the equation too.
1: There are good examples. And like I said, like the departed is a good one. But then at the same time, I feel like, like I said, like there's – a, a belief that all of a sudden the Hollywood one becomes the definitive version of that. Yes, and I'm like, that's, that's very true. disrespectful to the original part. Like I know right after another round one in, um, or another round one, that's tough to say when they won the, uh, <laughs> the Oscar, was it last year or two years ago. Now I can't remember two years ago, but literally right. Like right after that happened, they, it was announced that uh, Leo DiCaprio was going to do, they were going to do a remake. In, in Hollywood. And I'm like, Jesus. Of another
2: round?
1: Yeah. Like they want to do an American yeah. version of it. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like this movie was perfect. It was great. Why are they, why do you need to do a Hollywood one? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't know. It's a, I really don't have an answer to that. I almost would say I'd rather, I'd rather Hollywood make the adaptation just cause I can ignore it and just continue to complain about it. <laughs> um. <laughs> Mm -hmm. because yeah when I think when when I think maybe it bothers me more when great filmmakers from around the world people treat like Hollywood as in that's the best thing that you could possibly do in your career and yeah yeah that I and I that probably sits less well with me than a shitty remake being done or a good remake being done and the original not getting enough respect in that situation that's a really tough question though
0: well, well I'm done. I'm glad it uh, was tricky for you to answer that. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think I would agree that I would probably pick the adaptation just because I feel like there are some successful ones, but also it allows it allows for for real movie lovers the ability to go back and find the original as well, which uh, can, you know, whether it's it's a a movie, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago that it's being remade or if it's a more recent example, it sort of allows people the opportunity to be like, you know what, I've, I've been needed to check out this other movie, I really should, now that this new one is out, let's let's see what the original was all all about.
1: That's also coming, though, from your being, like, as much as I make fun of you for, for certain things, is, like, you know movies and you have an appreciation for film that's not necessarily just in the English language, whether it's American, British, or Canadian, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say you are in the minority of what most people look at like i I would assume there's people who watched old boy like the american one and went oh that's a crappy movie yeah and then thought well i'm never gonna watch the original because that's stupid (laughs) like why would i waste my time on that um so i don't know i was just gonna say you love the departed but you still haven't seen infernal affairs so (laughs) i know yeah there you go and that's i mean the departed came out ages ago now so you've had more than enough time to watch infernal affairs
0: Fair enough. But I think the takeaway of your point that you made just there is uh, you said that I'm a minority.
1: <laughs> yeah, the white man is a minority. Should, you, should, you, know, you should feel good about right. the stereotyping that the Revenge of the Green Dragon. <laughs> um, you should feel better about that one there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Rachel, what is your would you rather okay, question?
1: Okay, I'm going to lighten it up now because I've the. I've been trying to make a question around MSG, basically. <laughs> I've been trying to figure something out around the concept of MSG because I thought it was very funny that they literally had just bowls of MSG next to the stove. <laughs> I was like, this, it's a bit much. So would you rather have something that was slightly over-seasoned with MSG or incredibly, incredibly bland like boiled wartime depression era food.
0: That's not even a question, Rachel, come on.
1: I don't know. Cause if something is over seasoned, that can also actually be very, people don't like that either. It's like over salted food. That's terrible. But this is over MSG food because you put too much from the bowls of, <laughs> from the, of the stove. I,
0: I I think for me, it's, it's easy. It's the, it's the over-seasoning with the MSG whether it's whether it's over seasoned or it's the MSG, it doesn't really matter. You can you can change it if you know, if it's too salty or whatever, put a little bit of hot sauce. No, you can't squirt do that, a little bit though. of lime in there, things like that. You can't. I I have to eat it as is. You have to
1: eat it as is. Because you could say for the bland okay. food, well I can just add salt. <laughs> like I can just take the salt and just put it <laughs> on there. See, but
0: that's the thing is like you're talking about like bland, you know, World War Two era British food. Talking about which, bland white people you know,
1: food, okay? Like I was trying to be nice, yeah, but the, the issue
0: with that is there's no seasoning whatsoever, and adding salt isn't going to make things taste more more rich and more layered. That's not going to solve anything. That's just being like, oh god, I just need to taste something of on this food, whereas over seasoned or over msg those are two different things you're talking about you know different herbs and spices and things like that going on and and with with msg we, we later learned that it was more of a, a scare perpetuated by racism by white people that like yes it gave food an unnatural shine but like it was no different than adding salt to food it wasn't causing these huge health issues that we see perpetuated in this movie that was a stereotype of that era um but like yeah i'd rather take the overseasoned and the msg food than underseasoned bland food like screw that no
1: so i'll say when i say over like msg i don't mean it's a health issue of like oh msg is bad i just mean it, it, it's it's tough to eat when something has too much MSG in it.
0: But I'll still take that over the bland food.
1: Rose, what would you choose?
2: Um, that's hard, actually. Thank you. Because when I it think of hard. too much MSG, I'm <laughs> thinking of like the the powder at the bottom of a chip bag. Yeah, yeah, and it is a little gross. But I do eat a lot of chips, so. <laughs> Maybe MSG. I would
1: shockingly say I'd prefer the bland food because I find it really, really difficult to eat something that has too much saltiness or too much Um, MSG-ness. I don't know. My my body just rejects it. And I feel very uncomfortable. And I I find it really, really difficult to eat. So there you go. I would go with the bland white people food. Cause I like, I genuinely, thought, <laughs> cause that you can eat. It. It's not a pleasant eating situation, that you can just eat it. At least I can eat it. Whereas if you put too much, too much MSG in something, um, I actually think it's very tough to eat.
0: Interesting. Okay. That's fair. Uh, I think that wraps up our conversation on revenge of the green dragons. Rose, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Where can people find you and your work? And is there anything you'd like to promote?
2: Um, everyone read the Asian cut, which I've, which, uh, Rachel and Alicia and I have started only about a month ago, but, mm-hmm. uh, we're really excited about that. And, um, everything else is just on letterboxd because, uh, I don't use Twitter and my Instagram is private. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you just did a really nice review of, of rice boy sleeps on the Asian cut uh, a movie that Rachel was able to interview Anthony Shim, the director, for uh, for this podcast during TIFF. So if anyone had seen Rice Boy Sleeps either during TIFF or since it's come out, uh, they should check out your review, which I'm going to link to in the show notes.
2: Yeah, That Thank movie's
1: you. done very, very well. I'm very proud of of Anthony Shim for that. He's done really, really well.
0: Now, Rachel, what about you? Uh, where can people find you, your work? And is there anything you want to promote?
1: Um, I'll go with Rose and I'll promote the Asian cut as well and say um, we've been, like Rose said, we've been working hard on it. And it's only been a month, but we've made, I think, pretty good progress in one month. Um, Real Asian, the Toronto Real Asian Film Festival is on right now uh, until the end of the month. And so as you would imagine, um, our site is pretty much fully engrossed into that festival at the moment um and if you're in Vancouver there's the Vancouver Asian I don't know the full name uh, Vancouver Asian Film Festival I want to say um that's on I believe right now as well it's around the same time so if you're looking for if you're in Toronto or Vancouver and you're looking to go watch some and they're both doing in person so you can go in and um catch some good movies and other than that I'm trying to think Oh, I really liked my review of Wakanda Forever. I was actually pretty proud of that one. So <laughs> uh, after you've gone to see Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, go check out my review. It's on Exclaim.
0: Awesome. Well that is excellent to hear. Uh I will be avoiding reading that until I see it. I've been uh trying to not read anything about it, uh, just to go in fresh, because that's basically the only Marvel movie I'm really excited yeah. about these days. Same. Um Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Uh, And if you have seen Revenge of the Green Dragons, I don't know why you would have, but let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. And if you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you really like listening to the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Thank mm-hmm. mm-hmm.